People ask me all the time, how do you have like eight companies all running? And it's because you start by putting together the right team. The first thing to keep in mind is this is the greatest time in history to be an entrepreneur. You've got to get the leads first and then discover the other problems that are downstream. So you've got to move across to selling intellectual property, media and software that essentially can scale anywhere. What are the best ways for generating leads and obviously qualifying them so that you can sell these leads? Steve Jobs went up against IBM and beat IBM at their own game by adding a personal brand to it. Everyone fell in love with Steve Jobs and his way of thinking, and that's why they switched across to Apple. So personal brands are everything. I started with three people, and I put put my team together, and we launched, and we did 1.3 million in the first year working together. The entrepreneurial success story is the journey of a thousand pitches. There is no great business that came into existence where the founder didn't pitch it a thousand times. So you got to get good at pitching. The idea that you're not going to have something to do after you've exited. I've exited several businesses. There's always something to do. It is never a problem that you don't have stuff to do. And welcome back to the Frankie Lee podcast. Today, I have got you an awesome guest, a man whose books, I've read two of his books, uh, Key Person of Influence and Oversubscribed. He's an absolute weapon of an entrepreneur in the space, obviously building multiple companies, scale them to north of a million a month. Daniel Priestley, welcome to the podcast. How did I get so lucky to be on your podcast? Mate, I, uh, I was thinking about, I was thinking the same thing about you. I think, uh, I think, I think you're the reward for me working hard. <laughs> but, uh, mate, I just want to kind of, obviously I've read, I've read both, both of those books, Daniel, and I know you've got a lot of other books in the space that help entrepreneurs scale their business, grow more leads, uh, get more leads and all that kind of stuff. I, I think we're going to touch on all of that throughout this podcast. But one of the, key, I just want to, I want to give people an understanding of your journey because obviously your journey started off in Australia, um, growing someone else's business and then you had to you you pivot and had to leave australia and come to the uk and start again essentially i didn't have to leave australia i just want to be clear the way you said that sounded like i was like on the run (laughs) you 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 were he's lying no no, i'm joking he wasn't he wasn't on the run he wasn't on the run but if you could just give a bit of a key context into into your into your starting of your journey because i think it really really builds from there yeah, I've, I've always thought of myself as very entrepreneurial. Um, as a teenager, I ran nightclub parties. Um, I sold roses door to door on Valentine's Day. Um, I ran garage sales with my neighbors and sold stuff. Like I was just totally geeking out on that stuff. Age 15, I'm reading The E-Myth and Rich Dad, Poor Dad and those kind of books. Um, I'm listening to tape sets by Tony Robbins. Um, and I'm just dreaming of one day I'm going to be an entrepreneur. Um, I didn't, I don't, maybe I didn't have the word for it, but that was kind of like the plan. Um, I wanted to build businesses and all that sort of stuff. Age 19, I get a mentor. I go and work in a startup. My mentor's startup just took off. I was employee number two or three. Um, we ended up with 60 people at the end of the year and about 6 million uh, of revenue. Uh, and I got the opportunity to throw myself into marketing, into sales, into a um, little bit of like P&L and finance and all of that sort of stuff. And at the end of two years working for my mentor, he basically said to me that it was time for me to go and start my own business. And I went off and started my own company and at age 21 launched a business and it just took off. Uh, we went from zero to a million in the first year or 1.3 million in year one. Uh, I got up to 10.7 million by age 24. Uh, and yeah, just had this kind of like really fast start to business. Um, what, what, yeah. what, what was the key thing then, Daniel, that, that allowed you, because obviously you're with your mentor for a couple of years. What, what was the key thing that he taught you that allowed you to go from zero to 1.3 million in that short space of time? What, what was the key metric there? 
the key thing is lead generation. So essentially, he had a saying which was everything's downstream from lead generation. And if you can pile the leads into a business, um, a couple of things happen. Number one, you get demand and supply tension, right? So whatever it is you're selling, if there's lots of people coming in on the lead gen, uh, you've got plenty of um, just tension, people wanting to buy from you. Uh, second thing that happens is that if you're at all smart about it and you can collect any data on the people, you can score the leads um, or you can do segmentation. So data enrichment leads to data segmentation. If you can do data segmentation, you can then choose the best leads. You can actually be making sure that you're selling to the right people. Um, and the other thing that happens is uh, you don't have to do any discounting because you've got so many leads coming in. So you very rarely have to charge a, a reduced price, which means you become profitable. So um, t this is 21 years ago. So the thing that he taught me was predominantly newspaper advertising. So I would got really good at writing newspaper advertising content, headlines, um, all of that sort of stuff. This was back in the day that a quarter page ad was about seven or $8,000. We used to run an ad every week. Uh, generate a ton of leads and then make sales. Um, so it was just essentially the, the cornerstone skill has been lead generation, um, and and that's you know that's one of the the things for um, building a successful business, I guess. I think one of the things as well, Daniel, that uh, that a lot of people get wrong is is they test the sm a small group of people. So like you talking about like a newspaper lead generation and other forms of lead generation like that. People people like if they were doing leaflets and stuff like that which people have done in the past and people do successfully even now to this day it's like they're testing too small a batch or too smaller newspapers to get the results they want so is there a set is there a set amount of um uh, you know amount of kind of min is there a minimum viable test basis that you test this on mm -hmm. to make sure it works yeah look i'm going to say a few things on that um the first one is if you imagine a rocket that's perfectly built beautifully engineered but you just don't put enough fuel in the rocket, uh, it's not going to get off the ground. And sometimes people have a beautifully built business, but they just don't put it in front of enough people, right? So they're not running enough ads or they're not doing enough of the minimum effective dose that is required to get their business to take off. Um, so I see that all the time and they're tinkering with their business and they're trying to like fix a rivet here and put a hose in there and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And it's like, hey, the business itself is great. You're just not putting it in front of enough people. You don't have a big enough audience. Um, so essentially that uh, that happens uh, and that's, you know, a really important point that you make about minimal effective dose. Um, so if you're going to test anything in statistics there is a couple of what's called statistically significant milestones. Um, the first one is uh, a sample size of 30 and then a sample size of 150. So for example, I would never say that an ad works or doesn't work unless at a very basic level, unless I've had 30 clicks of the ad um, and I can see how much traffic or how much spend we had to do to get 30 clicks. Next level up and a much better level is 150 clicks. Um, so if I'm going to run, you know, if I'm going to do a test budget, I'm going to run enough of a budget to get 150 people clicking through that ad because that's really the minimum that it's going to take for me to know whether that scales or not. There's another big mistake that people make, and they think that success and failure is about percentage conversions, and it's not. It's cost per sale. Like, it, let's say I ran an ad and I was getting two-pound leads but only 1% of those leads convert, right? So 
cost me £200 to get one sale. But let's say that sale is £1,000, right? So it's now costing me a couple of hundred pounds to get £1,000. Um, so the real question is, is that a allowable cost? Is that is that a viable cost? So a lot of people go, oh, 99 out of 100 people are not working, uh, are, not, are not buying. I'll give you some real numbers. Um, I have a business that is wildly successful and we generate 63 leads for every sale. And it costs about five to six hundred pounds to generate those sixty-three leads, about eight or nine pounds um, per per lead. However, uh, that works out at a set uh, on average thousand pound sale. So you know it's about eight or nine percent of revenue goes into the ads uh, in order to you know we spend you know a few hundred pounds, we make a few thousand pounds. So it's totally viable. Um, now, some people look at it and go, oh my goodness, 62 out of 63 people aren't buying from you. Right? That's totally fine. <laughs> That's not a problem. It really comes down to the co- allowable cost per sale. I love I love that because you've essentially just said there in in no uncertain terms that it doesn't matter what stage your business is at and where you're, where you're at at all. It's, it's essentially like just simply fire more leads into that business so that you have more choice. And, and they able, you are able to sell them something. You might have other problems, but but it, everything's downstream from lead generation. So if your problem, if you've got if you've got um, a perfectly built business and you don't fire enough leads at it, it doesn't matter how great the business is. It really doesn't matter. You could be best in the world at what you do if you're just not firing enough leads down you know down into that business. It doesn't matter. Now you may fire thousands of leads down the down to the business, and you've got lots of lead generation. You might then have a sales conversion problem. You might then have a product uh, problem. You might then have a customer servicing problem. Those problems could come later, but it's really you've got to discover those problems through the interaction with customers. You've got to get the leads first, and then discover the other problems that are downstream. And also the other problems that you speak of also happen after the sale and then you have the money to solve the problem that you now have in your business so really then the key the key thing is is generate more leads sell more deals and then everything like you say is downstream from that and and and, you know everyone's business so the next question is like what what are the best ways that you know right now um in i know we can't go business specific but what are the best ways for for generating leads and, and 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 obviously qualifying them so that you can sell these leads so there's a few. Um, let me run through them and I'll finish with my favorite. Uh, so the first one is join a waiting list. Well, joining waiting lists for a new product or a new product innovation or a product update, really great strategy. Um, you should never be launching a product straight from, uh, you know, basically straight into the marketplace. You should always be doing join a wait list first. Look at Elon Musk. He never just says, hey, do you want a Cybertruck? He says, we're going to do Cybertruck. Do you want to join the waiting list? for Cybertruck. So join the waitlist is an awesome lead generator. Number two would be uh, attend an event, introduction event. So an introduction event is where you invite people to come along to an introductory event. Um, Let's say you're a fitness trainer, an introduction to weight loss, an introduction to building bigger muscles, an introduction to uh, eating right, uh, eating eating correctly. So all of those are just introduction events. And if someone's attending one of those, that's a very good, solid lead. Um, number three is a WhatsApp group. Uh, so you would actually create a pop-up WhatsApp group. Sometimes you can do a five-day WhatsApp group where you do, uh, we're doing a five-day special on having a breakthrough for X. Um, so maybe you run, uh, maybe you run a, an agency that does branding, a five-day branding breakthrough. 
Um, so join the WhatsApp group and we're going to talk about it for five days. Or you could do it open-ended, which is just purely and simply, we've got a, um, a special WhatsApp group for marketing managers. Come and join the WhatsApp group. Um, so that can be a, a really great one as well. Uh, the big one, the most exciting one, is quizzes, scorecards, assessments. So a quiz, scorecard, assessment, a little bit different to a survey. A survey, people answer questions, and then it says, thanks for answering the question. It's a real one-sided interaction. People just answer questions to help someone's, uh, someone's business. A quiz or an assessment is where you answer all those questions in, in exchange for an immediate result. So let's say I take a quiz called, um, are you ready to run the marathon? Right? Are you ready to run a marathon? Uh, I answer 15 questions and it says, you are 72% ready. Here's the things you need to do to get 100% ready. Now that's a value. If I want to run a marathon, that's very valuable. I will answer the questions in order to get that assessment. I'll get that uh, you know, specific information back for me. Now that is a very, very strong lead because I've got name, I've got email, I've got 15, 20 different bits of information about the person. I know geographically where they are because of IP address. All sorts of information comes pouring in when someone fills in an online assessment or an online quiz. People love quizzes and it's not just teenagers who love quizzes. We've got uh, quizzes and scorecards that go out to CEOs and uh, executives and wealth managers and high net worths. Everyone loves a good quiz uh, or assessment. I was looking at your your software the other day um, that, that that does exactly this, and obviously you've you've built that and discovered that method. Um, and I was kind of kind of thinking through the the numbers in my head of like, okay, well, if we did a reputation management assessment quiz on our website rather than just trying to remove content for argument's sake, I think that not only would the cost of acquisition of leads come down, but the results that we could give the clients would go up and the people we could obviously um, sell into our services and help on the, on the back end would go up as well. So I think that's, I think it's a very viable thing that you mm-hmm. did. But one, when I was listening to, listening to another podcast that you did, I kind of want to, I, I understood the context of you finding that was when you had to develop something for $12,000 yourself in order to test this out yourself. When, with, with, I think it was the key person of influence book. You, you, yeah. you developed a piece of software for that. Yeah, so I, I did version one of my book and uh, back in 2010. And we were giving away thousands of copies of the book and hoping that people would email us or hoping that people would come through and become clients and all that sort of stuff. And then when we did the revised edition, we created this online scorecard. And what we did is put some pages into the book that said, um, if you want to get the most out of this book, start by taking the scorecard, take, the, take this quiz, and it will tell you um, where you're strong and where you're weak. Uh, as a key person of influence in your industry. And it will benchmark you against the things that are in this book. People absolutely adored this. They loved it. So when we would give away a copy of the free book, they would start by taking the quiz, the scorecard. We also had a bookmark in there. So it actually said, before you read the book, take the uh, take the scorecard. So we generated 90,000 leads, um, people taking this online quiz, which translated into just under 20 million pounds worth of sales well over $20 million worth of sales. So essentially, we can track straight back to that one activity of giving away a free book with a quiz in it to $20 million worth of sales coming straight back in. Um, so a really successful campaign. Um, and when I built that, I actually built three of them, and they're about eight to 12000 each uh, because you need to build a landing page, a data capture quiz, and then dynamic results that change and shift based on how people um, score. 
And that basically took a lot of coding and design and all of that sort of stuff. Fast forward to today, we built the platform with AI built into it. So what took us six weeks and 8,000 pounds uh, takes six minutes and it's part of a free trial or 29 a month um, you know, if someone wants to do it. Essentially, we took all of our learnings and best practices and stuck it into software that's AI-enabled, um, and it just all happens like magic. It's great. But one, of the th- one of the key things as well I've noticed as you as an entrepreneur, and, and obviously since you've obviously left Australia, come to England and set up all these businesses, is that you are really, um, really passionate about businesses having intellectual property, be it, be it via digital assets, software as services, and other under other assets that you think a lot of businesses are underutilizing that they don't even realize are assets within their business. How can someone in this audience look at their business right now and see the assets within their business that are not put into intellectual property that they can sell and identify them and then, and then go and monetize them on the back end? Yeah, well, let's start with this. The first thing to keep in mind is this is the greatest time in history to be an entrepreneur. For the first time ever, we have more money uh, you know, available for investment into businesses. Um, we have global markets. It never used to be the case that a small business could sell to people all over the world. We have all the tools and the technology for your scale of business, and it's all just like plug and play. Um, you can build a global team. You can have people scattered all over the world. It doesn't matter where they are. They could, you know, it could be in Philippines or South Africa or any of those sorts of places. Boom, they're plugged into your business and, you know, you're working together as a team and you might coordinate on Slack and Zoom and all that sort of stuff. So it's the most incredible time to be uh, in business. But the only condition for this working out well for you is that you're not stuck in a geography. You're not stuck selling to one geography. So if you are a personal trainer in Wimbledon, unfortunately, that means that you don't get to take advantage of this entire incredible ecosystem of stuff that's going on. So you've got to move across to selling intellectual property, media and software um, that essentially can scale anywhere. What is intellectual property? Intellectual property is know-how. It's the, it's the knowledge. So it's essentially the ability to go from point A to point B predictably and reliably Whatever is the steps to go from point A to point B, that's intellectual property. Uh, It can also be the right stories and analogies. So, for example, if you've got great stories from your background, that is technically, or sorry, not technically, but it is part of your intellectual property. That's your story. makes for good media. It makes for good content. It's reasons for people to come and work with you. If you've won awards, that is part of your unique intellectual property offering that allows people to say, hey, I want to work with you. And I want to um, I want to work with you on getting this particular result. So, purely and simply, one of the first things to do if you want to do this yourself and unlock your intellectual property, you have to get into the shoes of a customer, the type of person that you sell to, and you've got to figure out where are they now, where do they want to be, and what's in the way. Those are the first three things. So, what is their current reality? What is their desired reality? And what are their obstacles? And then you, as the entrepreneur, have to construct what we call a path of least resistance. And the path of least resistance takes them from where they are to where they want to be without hitting any of their obstacles. And if you can do that, that is essentially creating intellectual property. Right? Now, obviously, part of it is a set of steps. Part of it is the stories that bring it to life and inspire people to actually do it. You know, All of that's included. But essentially, what is intellectual property? It's your ability to help people go from where they are to where they want to be without hitting their obstacles. Can you give me a few examples of where you've seen this recently implemented into the business, which has turned it around in revenue numbers as well? 
why don't we do your business? Well, uh, uh, okay, let's do it then. Let's do it. So, uh, so it, with, with contentremoval.com, obviously I look after a lot of celebrities and brands. So essentially, uh, I'm selling high ticket services to celebrities and brands and, and invariably a lot of those people don't want to, they don't want to, um, they just want it done. They just want it done. They so want to. Who, so here's the question. The first one is who are they? Celebrities and brands. Uh, where are they now? So when we think about where are they now, is it always that there's a piece of content that they wish was, that wasn't online? It, essentially, I, I get people at their most painful point, yeah. So something's popped up and they're really frustrated. They don't want that online. Where do they want to be? They want it so that if people Google them, the page one, two, and three is beautiful and clean and it is nice and great and that that horrible content's been taken down, right? So that they've got a clean online reputation. So where are they now? Something is really annoying them. They have a piece of content that they don't want. Where do they want to be? Clean reputation, right? What are their obstacles? What are the criteria? So the obstacles that are in the way, they're busy. They've got to make sure that they stay focused on the thing that they do best. Um, uh, criteria, uh, they you know may need to keep their, their nose out of it. They might need to have it fit a certain budget, right? So all of those things. So we start with all of that. Now, here's the question I've got for you. Do you have a series of steps that you can go through predictably to get people to clean up their reputation? So in terms of uh, assessing and kind of um, ascertaining where, where they're at and, and where they want to get to, yes. But in terms of well, the reason why this is such a difficult skill and the reason it took me seven years to become one of the best in the world at it is because every intrinsically every piece of content that I look at um, and the reason why it's been so hard to scale other than high ticket is because every piece of content I look at is invariably different, different servers, different problems, different, lo- different mm-hmm. year. Li- Which uh, is that there are pillars? Yeah, so, so, there's, so there's, there's definitely pillars. You're right. There's definitely pillars of, of things like, okay, you, you do this first and then you do this and then you do this and this. So it can be separated into pillars, yes. Great. So those pillars, that's a beginning of intellectual property. Um, so you can actually uh, say, I've got a six-pillar approach, and here's pillar one, pillar two, pillar three, pillar four, pillar five, pillar six. And then within those pillars, you can also break it down into there are three key principles. Principle one, two, and three. In pillar one, I've got principle one, two, and three. In pillar two, there are four key principles. In pillar five, there are you know some steps. So you can actually break it down into pillars, and then you can do some steps or principles within those. And now you've got intellectual property. If you could put it up on a big poster, that this is these are all the things that we do to get uh, to get this down. Um, that would be a piece of intellectual property. If you sat down and thought yeah. about it and said, "Hey, there's 99 techniques, 99 tactics that I've created over the last uh, several years, and those tactics uh, fit to easy and advanced." Uh, or easy, intermediate, and advanced. Now you've got your document called your ninety nine tactics. Yeah, I, I, I like I like that. So you're so, so you're so, so essentially then you're saying that I should also sell the intellectual property of how people can go and remove content themselves. Because I've always been worried about that for cannibalizing my business because of the amount of years I've put in at getting so good at what I do. So I would, if I was running your business, I would focus pro- predominantly on high ticket. But see, you can do this for anyone anywhere in the world. So if I, were, if I were in your shoes, I would probably have a team of maybe five or six people who do this, you know, who I oversee and who actually do the work and actually 
go through the time-consuming activities of cleaning up a, a brand or a reputation. So I'd have my team. I'd focus on high ticket, um, and I would definitely scale up for high ticket. So um, I'd create an online assessment. Um, can we clean up your brand, or is your is your uh, is it possible to fix your brand? Can you take the take the uh, assessment to see if your brand is fixable? Uh, it might ask thirty or forty different questions, and then it's like, yep, okay, we've got a we've got a you know a, a landscape uh, we can work with. Uh, I'd then get on the phone, talk to someone, um, and make sure that we can, you know, if we've pre-qualified them, get on the phone, talk to them, and see if we can sign them up for the high ticket. The high ticket would be the cleanup, followed by the ongoing retainer uh, reputation, yeah, reputation building and cleaning, um, so that it goes on ongoing. The primary core business would be working with celebrities and brands to do it all for them, that they can outsource it. Now, celebrities and brands, they absolutely will not ever be interested in buying a course or a do-it-yourself program. They, their time is too valuable for them to uh, focus on this idea of doing it themselves. They're just never going to do that. So if you're going to um, sell a, a do-it-yourself solution, you could put that on the website and you, or you could have it as a fallback. So when you speak to someone, well, they take the assessment and you realize that their business does, one of the questions could be, does your business do more than half a million a year of revenue? If their answer is no, you say, great, we recommend this um, cleanup kit for $500. Um, so feel free to buy it. It's got all the videos, it's got the strategies, it's got all of that in there. Um, we've given you all of the strategies that are cheap and effective um, that allow you to do this yourself or, or get an 80-20 result. It allows you to do the 80% of uh, the the 20% of stuff that gets 80% of the result done. Um, and I, it's 500 bucks. I love it because when you get people that do a, a 30 or 40 question uh, brand audit, one, they're serious mm -hmm. about solving their problem. And two, you've given them ten, tangible value based upon the data that they've given you anyway and the PDF that they download on the back end of it. So, that, so, it's, so it's actually valuable for them to understand their, 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 where they're open and where they're mm -hmm. where where you know where they're not seeing that they're that they're left wide open. I mean, if one of the questions on there was like, okay, do you own the first page of Google for your brand search or for your CEO search for that brand? And the answer is no. Well, that's a vulnerability now that we can backfill mm -hmm. with press, with this, with that, and, and kind of yep. and kind of that is a high ticket service sold on the back of that information that you've put in that quiz. So I can mm -hmm. I can see how the software you've developed and, and score app and how everything can apply to every business out there. How would a bricks and mortar business uh, be able to use score app? Uh, well, it depends on what type of business have you got one in mind? Let, let's talk about uh, some, someone like selling, selling cars or selling homes or, you know, so, so, so real, real estate. So or, a real life example, real life example in business called bunky life um, and bunky life so the Canadian term for a cabin in the woods is a bunkie. And what you do is you basically, you get a little piece of land and you build a cabin uh, and you can go fishing from there or hiking from there. You can stay the night, a couple of nights. It's designed as like a permanent tent, glamping pod thing, right? So it's a bunkie. Um, and the business that is the leading company in this uh, space is called Bunkie Life. And they send you out a kit and you build it yourself. So you take it out into the woods you carry it out there, and then you build the bunky kit um, in a weekend. Uh, now, they used to run ads, uh, would you like to buy a bunky? And it used to take people through to their e-commerce store and all of that sort of stuff. 
And then they changed their ad strategy to a quiz. Are you ready for the bunky life? Um, test yourself to see if you're suitable, whether you've got the building skills, whether you've got the right place to put it, um, all of those sorts of things. And it was basically 20 questions and it gives you a score on a think of three or four different categories. They doubled their sales. They went from three and a half to seven million a year through that ad spend. Uh, and um, essentially all they changed was rather than sending people to e-commerce, they sent people to the quiz first and then e-commerce um, based on their quiz results. So helping people to better understand whether they're ready to do this and whether they can can do this led to twice as many sales for the exact same ad spend. Uh, so that's a you know a fairly bricks and mortar kind of business. It's you know selling these construction kits. Um, we've seen this work with all sorts of different businesses, uh, traditional businesses selling cars. Are you ready to upgrade your car? Would you qualify for a lease? Um, you know, can you um, can you claim tax deductions on a new car? Um, should you switch across to an electric vehicle? Answer these quiz questions and find out. Uh, so. You know any of those questions that customers have in their head before they purchase, you can build a quiz around that and help the customer to answer it themselves. One 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 place where I think this would work really well is I've got a friend in Australia. He, he does like 150 million in commercial property, and he's got a um, he does this certain type of unit. His name's Oscar Ledlin. He does this uh, certain type of unit they've created, which is um, you know concrete, concrete, polished concrete base, kitchen in the back mezzanine floor and they call them a flexi it's a trademark term it's a flexi unit and something like that would be would be ideal then so they could put you know are you ready for the flexi life and you could take them through the the questions and then you qualify the leads on the score app like that essentially yep yep is your business ready to uh, grow and expand through um you know flexi locations uh, flexi space uh so any of those things you know, here's the here's the interesting one. It used to be when a customer wanted to buy from a company, and some of your younger listeners will find this like really strange, but it used to be that you would kind of think about buying something and then you would immediately talk to a salesperson. So you'd pick up the phone and talk to someone in sales. Uh, so you'd say, oh, I'm thinking about buying a guitar, right? What What do you do? Go down to the guitar shop, talk to the guy who works in the guitar shop. Uh, and that was like how people would buy stuff. <laughs> I'm thinking about um, moving into a new office space. Well, I better go talk to the commercial office space person. So one of the very first things that you used to do was talk to someone. And now the research says the opposite. People want to do tons of research online. And at the very, very, very last minute, they want to talk to someone. That's it. At the, like at the very end of the whole process. So you know, essentially any questions that a person would have talked to a salesperson about early in the sales process, you want to put a, a scorecard or a quiz up front so that people can kind of do that online assessment stuff. They don't want to talk to humans anymore. They want to kind of interact with a computer system that will give them an answer without having to talk to a human. At the very end, once they've done their research, then they'll talk to the human and they'll, they'll buy. Um, so it's really interesting. In the last 10 to 15 years, the sales process has flipped on its head completely. Um, and now, you know, you bring in salespeople at the very last minute as opposed to having them available at the beginning. So it's similar then to long-form sales copy because when I used to do long-form sales copy on the website and stuff like that, and, and that's obviously worked quite well for content removal, we addressed all the pain points in the long-form copy so that when they got to the end of the copy and they submit the form, 
that you know it, it's it's answered all of their um, common questions that we would have on a sales call and sales call environment. So that when you get them on the when you get them on the call and you know they've read the sales copy, that that they're a better lead for you as a business, so they're easier to close, and you can give them the result because they've read exactly what you do on the sales letter. It's not just good for you; it's good for them as well. That's how people want to buy. They um, they don't actually want to talk to people anymore. They want to be able to read stuff and then at the last minute, once they know you're the right company to talk to, then they want to talk to you. And it might just be that they want a little bit of therapy at that point. They just want to say, hey, we've had this problem and it really sucks. It's really been annoying us and we've read up on online that you guys are the best ones. Uh, and then they're ready to buy. So let's let's go into how people can build themselves into a key personal person of influence because obviously that that was one of the key books that i read um of yours and obviously from 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 these books and oversubscribed what i kind of went was i was like okay i don't need many leads well look i know that kind of counterintuitive to what you said but i don't need as many leads to go high ticket um as i do if i if i try and sell a 49 dollar product essentially so mm. from reading your books in the past i've gone okay right i'll go to I'll, i didn't start at the bottom of the market i just started at celebrities and brands and, and shot for the top people in this in whatever niches i wanted to go to and work my way backwards down not even that far backwards just a little bit down through through that little industry and, and signed every one of them because that to me at the time was like that allowed me to do half a million in business inside the first two months. So that's mm. that's the way I approached it. So how can people build that key person of influence for themselves so that they can do that as well? Well, it's really important to put a face on a business. All the data and all the research says that the only thing that gets cut through at the moment is the personal brand. The personal brand is the pointy pointy end of the uh, of the wedge. So I'll give you an example. Um, in football, Cristiano Ronaldo has something like 500 million followers on Instagram. If you add up every single football club, uh, they come into less than 200 million. So one player, one personal brand, has more than double the entire following of the entire league, the entire every single club. Now, you've got to keep in mind, these clubs, they're like 100 years old, They've got like intergenerational support, like grandpa followed the club, dad followed the club, I follow this club. Um, people wear the jerseys, they're super passionate, they talk about it, they discuss it. Like these are not boring brands. These are very important brands to the people who love football clubs. And yet one player has more than double the following of all the clubs combined. Um, Richard Branson has something like 15 million followers across his platforms Virgin has like 250, 300,000. It's wild. It's like an, not just an order of magnitude, multiple orders of magnitude. Here's a crazy one. Uh, Tim Cook has twice as many followers on Twitter and other platforms as Apple. Apple's considered to be the most valuable uh, big brand. And Tim Cook has got double the, the followers. Now, Tim Cook is like not some influencer. He comes out and he like does a presentation for five minutes every six months, right? He tweets a couple of times a month. He's a busy CEO, but people need to know who's Tim Cook and then they like Apple. Um, and originally, Apple got cut through against IBM with Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs went up against IBM and beat IBM at their own game by adding a personal brand to it. Everyone fell in love with Steve Jobs and his way of thinking, 
And that's why they switched across to Apple. So personal brands are everything. You've got to be a key person of influence if you want your business to get off the ground. You've got to be willing to represent your your business. So the first thing is, is just stop any resistance that you've got to this idea of like, oh, I just want to be hiding out in the background. I don't want to be a key person of influence. I don't want anyone to know who I am. You are going to get beaten by a competitor who has a key person of influence at the helm. Uh, so first of all, keep that in mind. Second, a key person of influence is not an influencer, right? You're not going to have to become the next Instagram model who's, you know, photographing the breakfast and doing on, you know, like uh, fashion shoot, try on this outfit type thing. You're not going to have to do any of that stuff to be a good key person of influence. What you are going to have to do is five things. Number one, get really good at pitching. Pitching your business is the cornerstone skill of every entrepreneur. You're going to pitch that business into existence. The, the entrepreneurial success story is the journey of a thousand pitches. Uh, there is no great business that came into existence where the founder didn't pitch it a thousand times. So you've got to get good at pitching. Number two, publishing content. People want to discover you online. You've got to give them podcasts and blogs and articles uh, and tweets and even a book. And you publish that stuff so that people can easily read up on you, watch, listen, whatever they need to do. Third one is signature products. So you've got to create, create products that are associated with your personal brand that are differentiated by your personal brand. And those are your signature products. Uh, number four is that you need to build a profile so that you are who Google says you are and that when someone Googles, you've got a great profile, right? You know a bit about that. Um, and that you're going to put yourself on a stage and you're going to put yourself on platforms and you're going to be on social media. You're not going to be living on social media, but you're certainly going to be able to be found on social media. And then the fifth one is where the money really kicks in, and that is partnerships. You're going to do joint ventures and, uh, and, and promotions and cross-promotions. You're going to do distribution partnerships, brand partnerships. Um, you might build an advisory board. You might package in other people's products or services. You might have your products and services packaged in with others. You might do email swaps. Uh, you might uh, get some angel investment, right? All of those are different types of partnerships. Uh, essentially, those partnerships happen when you're good at pitching, publishing products and profile, and then boom, you get the partnerships in there as well. And that's where the business really takes off. So your job as a key person of influence is to do those five things because they're very hard, if not impossible, to delegate. So what percentage of attributed revenue now comes through partnerships and joint ventures for your particular brands? So... It's a, I don't have the percentage to hand, but I think of partnerships as a great multiplier. Um, if I create a good product, um, here's, a, here's an example. So partnerships are all about structures, right? You've got to know how to structure these deals. And the reason most people don't do partnerships is they just don't know the structures. So for example, why do most people not get angel investment? They don't know how to structure angel investment. They don't know how to pitch it. Um, why do most people not have a brand ambassador? They don't know how to structure a brand ambassador agreement. Uh, why do people not have a non-executive director on their board? They don't know how to structure a non-executive director agreement. So the structures are really important. Each deal has its own structure and those structures have been done hundreds of times before and you just need to know how those structures work. But there's one structure that's really super powerful um, and most small businesses don't know it. And it's called a brand product distribution structure. And basically what you do is you take your business and you ask the question, who is a personality that would enhance our brand? Let's do a deal with them to get a bigger brand. So we're going to align with someone for a bigger brand. Who is someone whose product would enhance our product? And we'll do a product partnership. Who is a distribution that would enhance our distribution? 
and you will do one of those. A great example of this is Nespresso. So Nespresso um, was this coffee office coffee um, business, and they got inspired to do a um, consumer version. So they got George Clooney to represent the brand. Uh, they worked with Magimix to create a, um, a kitchen device that would make the coffee. And then they worked with Selfridges to do luxury high-end retailing. And basically, they had the three things, the brand, the product, the distribution. They brought those together. Boom. Uh, Nike do this all the time, really, really well. They say, we're going to be in the tennis space. So we're going to get Serena Williams. We're going to do a uh, partnership with Fruit of the Loom to create Serena Williams apparel. And we're going to do a partnership with Walmart to sell Serena Williams Walmart edition clothing. And we just made another $100 million just by doing those, you know, those three things. So this is called brand product distribution. So- Small businesses can do it as well. So they do that, and, they, and and even the clothing brand, because they don't want to put their own label on it, they put they, they align with another brand's label to put their label on it, so it can go into a go into a lower cost point. Yeah, I didn't even I didn't I didn't yeah. I didn't even I haven't even seen that myself from from Nike, but obviously I wouldn't see it because it's fruit of the loom. Example. Well, no, yeah, of course. Well, Nike Nike's supply chain is like thousands of suppliers. They have. Um, they have all these suppliers that make the rubber in the shoe soles and they have all these suppliers that do like everything from like the uppers and the laces and the boxes and like all of those are product partnerships. Um, but, you know, uh, they do overt product partnerships as well. They, they actually do product partnerships that are, um, you know, where they're working with like, for example, a product partnership that I think they've done is with um, what's that waterproof Cortex. Uh, so, you know, they work with Gore-Tex to create a hiking shoe and it's a, you know, Gore-Tex is named on the shoe as part of the product partnership. Yeah, because I suppose that's similar to what 3M do because 3M are partnered with like uh, a lot of post-it notes and other other stuff like that to to provide the, the stick to the post-it note, et cetera, et cetera, um, to kind of, because uh, obviously they're an adhesive company and, and their feature... Tape. Yeah, they're featured on no end, no end of things as a relation to that. So brand partnerships then are, are a key thing. But if there's one thing then that you've learned over the last 12 months of entrepreneurship that you did, that you didn't know before, but you now know that you wish you'd known sooner, what would that be? Uh, one thing would be that people who have massive followings, like millions and millions and millions of followers, they really, really, really hungry to do deals. They want to do deals to to make the most of those um, followers. They can't do deals with everyone, and they can't do deals with anyone. They've certainly got a criteria. They have to have something that's good for their people. They have to have a quality partnership in place. They have to have a good legal agreements in place. Um, they have to do something that can scale easily. But my goodness, do they want to do deals? They they know that they're sitting on this massive following, and they want to do something with it. Um, they're too busy doing the core of what they do in order to figure it out for themselves. So they're actually looking for really good deals to do. And if you can do a deal with someone like that, my goodness, uh, it can be transformational. Uh, it can be an overnight transformation. As soon as they drop it into their following, you know, they can create a business very rapidly. A uh, classic example of this would be what Logan Paul's done with Prime. So it's now a billion dollar plus business. Um, and it's like a couple of years old or not even. And basically he's done this all through partnerships. Um, and you know, it's a great example. I was actually speaking to the CEO of prime cause he's a, fr- he's a friend of mine. And, um, wow. he was, he was explaining to me the back end and how they've, and how he, 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 I was talking to him about distribution, him scanning distribution. And he's like, the thing is Frankie, what you don't understand is like, no one's, 
not even Coca-Cola have done this scale of, of distributions scaled this quickly across this yeah. many across this many countries at once. It's like, and he was explaining it to me, and it it, it was mental at, at, at how how much you have to conceptualize to be able to do that uh, and how many people you have to partnership with in order to get that done um because when when that brand was when people were selling those drinks for 15 20 pounds a bottle that, that prime themselves didn't didn't want that to happen but they could not scale quick enough production to be able to to yeah. be able to bring that because they wanted everyone to have access to it for two pounds but the but but they but they could not hit he said it was physically impossible for him to put enough factories online to be able to produce the stuff to be able to get it to the marketplace quick enough. So um, that, yeah, that that's that's that was a that's a mad example for you to use. It's a wild example, and sometimes we think about these examples and we go, "Oh, well, that's nice for them, but it wouldn't happen for me." Well, actually, we live in a time where those deals can happen very rapidly. Um, you need to know how to pitch them. You need to know how to structure those deals. You need to have a scalable product. So it's not like they happen by magic. You have to meet certain criteria. But oh my goodness, you know, you can, you know, it used to be that a $10 million company kind of never happened in under 10 years, <laughs> you know. And now these things happen to, you know, like we, we've built a $25 million company in under three years. Um, and it's a side hustle. It's not even the main thing. It's not the main business. I've got, you know, a group of companies and I've spread my time between all of them. Um, you know, and I'm I'm not by no means the, the best at this. Look at Elon Musk, right? <laughs> Comes up with an idea and it's a multi-billion dollar business in a matter of, uh, in a matter of a year or two. So we live in this time where things can happen incredibly fast uh, the biggest issue at the moment is that people just don't know how to put these things together. If you imagine, you know, I've got three little kids. Uh, if you imagine what it's like playing Lego without the instructions, you'd get nothing done. You know, if you were to tip out the the Lego and you've got a picture of the front of the box and you can see, okay, that's the X-Wing. That's what it's meant to look like. Um, and then you tip all the Legos out there and it's just all in the parts. And now you've got to figure out how to start and how to like put all the pieces together to make it look just like the front of the box. You'd never do that. You you know, but the Lego, they go, do this, then this, then this, then this, then this. And then suddenly you can actually build it uh, very rapidly, um, perfectly. The problem with entrepreneurship at the moment is that people are rushing. They're so excited. They're rushing in to try and build something, but they're not figuring out the instructions. They're not saying, what order should I do these things in? I th I, one, I, one, one thing I want to ask you, I think that, that I think a lot of people would get value from is, is obviously you're, you're a man with three young children and you've got a, a beautiful wife that probably um, sits, sits behind, behind you. It's a very valuable asset to you as a man that allows you the time to be able to go and build these things. I mean, how important has it been to have that kind of structure and relationship with your wife to allow that to happen and to facilitate that growth? Yeah, we have a great relationship. And, um, you know, my wife is focused on property renovations, renovations and developments. So um, we own property in really nice locations and she will buy stuff that's really run down and turn it around from low spec to high spec and that's that's a great strategy right so that's a that's fantastic we've got three little kids um so you know when i say little you know five six and uh, eight um so they're pretty young kids and um yeah we've got a fairly traditional setup you know uh, i've got all businesses elena's really great at you know investing and um 
and, and putting the money to work. Um, we have a great uh, work-life balance with the kids and, and taking the kids and doing fun things and, you know, teaching them to ride bikes and swim and all that sort of stuff. Um, it's, it's, it's everything, you know, how important is it? It's absolutely everything. It's the cornerstone of life. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to even put a measurement on it because it's basically, it's, it's everything. It's life. But, but see a lot of young men out there are, are, are being exposed to a lot of this content at the moment that's talking to them about masculinity and this, that, and the other. And, mm-hmm. so, and some of it, some of it, some of the content out there at the moment can be quite toxic in its nature of how they try and port- portray how masculinity is. Um, but I, but for you as an entrepreneur and the way that how did, what was your kind of criteria for looking for the right woman to get on the boat with you to be able to go, know that you're going in the right direction? Because I think uh, even though this might not seem relevant to a lot of people, it, it is relevant because most mm. of the most of the successful people that I've interviewed, like like you, that are, that are doing these hundreds of millions and have these portfolios of companies that are doing well, have got this sorted in their life and have made a good selection to be able mm. to grow with. So it's, so it's important for me to understand. Uh, it's, a, it's a great, it's a really great topic. The first thing I'd say, because I see a lot of this content as well, you've really got to listen to people who've got the result that you want and not people talking about the result that you want because there are a lot of people who are doing podcasts on dating and relationships and all this sort of stuff and they're not married and they don't have kids, right? So they're telling you what they think might work, but unless they're married with kids and they've actually made that work, um, unless they're happily married with kids, you really should sort of discount the level of advice. You want to find people who are happily married with kids. If you want to end up happily married with kids, you want to find people who have ended up happily married with kids and find <laughs> out, you know, what do they say? Because yeah. I bet there's some overlap, but I bet there's also some compromise. Um, you know, for me personally, I... You know, in my 20s and early 30s, I was flying around the world, traveling, having an amazing time building businesses, and I was up on stage all the time speaking, so I had no problem finding dates, right? So one thing that I would say to any young guy who's looking for dates uh, or, you know, partners and, you know, a partner is the more you chase it, the less likely it is to happen. The more you're doing cool shit, the more likely they yeah. come out of the woodwork. Right? 100%. So like for me personally, I put zero energy or zero effort into chasing girls. Um, but I was always meeting amazing people. I was always get, like, you know, because I think what, what I've found is that what is attractive about a guy is he's got good stories and he's doing interesting stuff and he's ambitious and he's up to stuff and he's got cheeky cheeky takes on the world and he's you know he's having fun with life and if if you're a guy who's having fun with life uh then that's incredibly attractive i used to host dinner parties and things like that and i'd invite all these people and you know i'm having fun with life and great stuff shows up so one time i meet this amazing woman called elena and she says i've just sold my company and i've i've come back to london and she's been working in the tech industry and I, I say, oh, cool. Well, I've got a few tech ideas that I'm trying to get off the ground. Can we have a, do you want to have a coffee? Do you want to have a chat? So we have a coffee and it's a beautiful sunny day. And the restaurant that I chose was like kind of dark. I said, let's go for a walk instead. So we go for a walk and then I say, hey, I know a great rooftop bar. Let's go to a rooftop bar and let's have a cocktail. So we end up talking and we're having a great time. And we end up talking for 12 hours, 13 hours. And I'm just thinking, this 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 is great. Like she's she's amazing. And... 
um, essentially what happened is I one of the questions I said is what's next for you and she said I want to have kids and I want to be a wife and I want to you know I really I'm looking for a husband I'm looking for a, for a family I want to be a wife and I want to be a mum and I was like wow that's cool I've not heard that before um, that sounds really cool a lot of a lot of the you know ladies that I was talking to they didn't want to do that and she was like no I want to that's what I'm looking for and my brain started thinking to myself, you know what, I'm kind of of that age where I'm thinking about that stuff as well. I want to be a husband. I want to have kids. And um, so I, I just kind of like, it was just kind of really cool the way that started. And this was before we'd like, you know, established any, you know, connection. Um, so we started dating and, and, uh, and, and yeah, it was, we were, we were engaged pretty quickly. We were ma- married pretty quickly. We had kids pretty quickly. Um, we just discovered that we were aligned on on that. Um, I really think that the person you marry, it's almost like a co-founder of a company. 100%. And the, the vision or the mission of that company is to have kids. Like um, that's the purpose. Like you're basically forming a partnership and you're looking for someone who is a good co-founder for a startup called a baby. <laughs> And basically, you know, you're, you're going to be running a house together. You're going to be having kids together. You're going to, you know, build a life together, build a family together. So you're looking for someone who's a really good fit for doing all of those things with. So when obviously, look, I've 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 tried a lot of dating in my, in my life, and um, one thing I can say to a lot of the young men and and young women listening to this is the fact of like, you know, or anyone who's, who's single is the fact of like it's very important because what I've noticed with me is when I've made selections predicated on um, looks and and it's hot and it's fun and it's like that it's 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 cost me massively on the mental space and and it, and it's and that drops down into revenue numbers and then when your revenue numbers start getting affected because you've chased spice that is um that is not ideal and and then you have to deal with the and usually what happens is the the after after that ends you you're left with you're left with a lull and then you lose more revenue <laughs> so it's like it all come it all comes back around to hit you you get you get you know you know them doors in the saloon that go like that and swing in and out you get hit on the way in and hit on the way out that's how yeah. that that's how improper selection of a partner can affect anyone who's trying to be an entrepreneur yeah and once you've got this area of your life sorted all of that energy gets freed up to go into building a life together Um, and the right the right partner you know so in my companies people ask me all the time how do you have like eight companies uh, all running and it's because start by putting together the right team so i have the right people running each of those companies and um, we typically in each company have like a dominant two people who are going to be running that business and you know effectively one is going to be accountable for revenue and one's going to be accountable for operations and um you know we we basically every business has got its own team very rapidly i'm getting a business to a team of about eight people so i have multiple companies that i own and each one has its own team and i'm essentially like a coach uh to the team i'm like the director uh who who is um you know making sure that that team's happy and resourced uh, and all of that sort of stuff. But when you find the right person, the right partner, like everything happens from there. I, I truly believe that business, everything great worth achieving is a team sport. Like it's all a team sport. So you're not going to build a great company on your own. You're not going to build a great relationship or a great life on your own. You're looking for the right team to put together in any project. So having kids and having a family is a team sport. 
um, having a multi-million dollar tech company as a team sport, um, you know, um, you know, all of that stuff is very much finding the right people, finding finding the right person to do that with. Uh, so once you find the right person, um, you free up all that energy to get something done in that space to have a have a great great result. And one of the first steps in finding the right person is stop spending time with the wrong person. Like if you know that crazy chicks that you meet at nightclubs always result in getting beaten up <laughs> on the way in and the way out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stop meeting crazy. Yeah. You know, and if you know that meeting women on dating apps is not the right way and that's not working for you, then stop that. Um, you know, there's a it's just a and, and also if you're becoming cynical and jaded by watching videos on YouTube that tell you over and over and over again that you're you know that currently you'll never meet the right person and women want this and unreasonable and you're never going to be able to succeed in relationships stop watching that stuff yeah right start watching start watching content by people who are happily married with kids if that's what you want and say well how do like of course people do that of course people become happily married with kids you know go stop listening to the nonsense or stop listening to the highly polarizing content that is warping your head into thinking you will never have this, right? It's really not that hard, you know, but start by listening to people who have got it, got the thing you want. So I have a few rules in business that I follow and um, a lot, all, all my mentors are like invariably happy married or in long-term relationships with girlfriends. My mum and dad have been married 45 years. I don't wow. do business with any man that, that I know cheats on women because if he cheats on women, he'll cheat on me in business. Um, so it's just, just a few metrics because of, I don't, I do not resonate with that way of moving. So I will not do business with you predicated on how you move and how I see you move. And people might think that, 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 uh, I think it all correlates, uh, further down the track and, and you get like, you get hit by the saloon door. I've seen it too many times. Um, and I, and I also think that having a business partner, like if you, you talk about finding the right partners in business and say you're too, two men and you might have a, an, another guy that's 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 wicked at all the other things that you're not good at but if he's mm. out there actively cheating on his his partner is he's going to cheat on you in business is the way i see it so i that's how i that's a few little things that i have that i will make sure it's always on point there's another side to that as well so in addition to having that mindset that it's okay to just get away with stuff um which is not a great mindset to be in business with someone who's got that mindset. People open up uh, portals to negativity in their life, right? So relationships, whether you like it or not, whether you believe it should be this way or not, relationships and especially sexual relationships come with all sorts of explosive baggage. So um, when you, like I have seen guys who have multiple girlfriends and who have multiple you know, partners and they cheat and all this sort of stuff. Every time they do it, they open up a, an energy-sucking portal and that portal gets bigger and bigger and bigger and they end up inviting things into their life and drama into their life. Men who have a very tight relationship with the truth and have a very tight relationship with the way that they conduct themselves, they don't open themselves up to that negative energy, right? They're not surrounded by these little energy portals that, that leak negativity into their lives. So... If you go and you, uh, you might say, oh, well, it's no big deal because, you know, it's just I've got an agreement with my partner that I can do this every now and then. 
Well, maybe you do have that agreement, but I can tell you that it's not going to work out that way if you have four or five different girls that you've kind of opened up an energy gateway with. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, and if it's not clean, it just there's just an energy leakage that happens, and it's negative, and it's not positive, right? So you end up with all this drama in your life that sucks the life force out of you. Uh, so, you know, my view is you want to have a really good, clean relationship with your spouse. Um, you don't want to invite negative drama into your life. Um, you don't want to do stuff that you wouldn't proudly put the spotlight on, um, you know, and and then life is easy. I think everything everything comes back round. So at the end of the day, if you can just move how you how you'd like everyone else to move, then it kind of helps you align with the right, the right people. Anyway, one of the, one, one of the, when I was um, studying and researching you for this interview, obviously, like I said, I read the books, but one of the things that I learned about you on a, on another podcast was um, your, your, a lot of uh, the way that you delegate with your um, executive assistant and how she fills your calendar, because you have a habit of saying yes to everything like like similar to what i do and i love the way that you justified how you say yes to everything and then you get your ea to selectively select with a different set of eyes what goes in your calendar when it goes in there and how it gets moved can you can i can you kind of expand on that for me yeah so um i've got a friend of mine who's an investor in the stock market and he says daniel you will never be a great investor in the stock market because you can create the bull case for anything um, the bull case is why it's going to go up, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm such, I, I have a mindset where I can always see the potential of the opportunity or that sort of stuff, um, which means I tend to go, yeah, let's do it. Let's, why not? Let's try this. Um, so I have a very much an open and a yes, let's try stuff kind of mentality. So uh, a lot of stuff comes at me, a lot of opportunities come at me and I say, sounds good, but I'll just need to check that with my executive assistant or send the information to my assistant. So the way it works is that about once a month, um, we have a 90-minute meeting and we go through all the opportunities, everything that's in the pipeline, and I start by explaining these are the outcomes that I'm trying to achieve by the end of the year or by the end of the quarter. This is the most important stuff. And we go through the priorities. So we both align around what are the big goals and then what are the priorities that lead off those big goals. And essentially... I hand that over to her and she's the filter because her answer is no to everything. She's the opposite to me, right? She's known as a, like a stone wall. Um, uh, even amongst my team, they're like, ah, oh, you know, Susie won't put time in the diary for this. Uh, so she stonewalls stuff. Her answer, her default response is no. Um, and my default's, yeah, why not, right? So if I just get her to understand the priorities and the goals, and then I send everything over to her. She puts stuff in the diary when it's a priority, when it's a goal, when it's aligned. Because she's because she's all she's obviously clearly understood the mission and has set parameters now to work from. And then she's got no um, like internal dialogue going on because she doesn't deal with all that. She just deals with does this align with this mission that you've put me on at the start of the month, or does it not? And it's a great metric to judge it from. Totally. The other thing too is I get so much done because I have an assistant who's scheduling stuff in the diary. Um, so my days are insanely productive because, and mind you, some of the, sometimes the priority is like gym, 
and the gym meetings, the gym appointments go straight in first into the diary um, before anything else. So basically, I become very, very productive. Like my big productivity hack is I just have an executive assistant who knows what I'm trying to achieve and schedules it. Um, and I just do what's in the diary. The other thing too is I'm pretty lazy in terms of I don't know what's coming tomorrow until I look. Uh, so it's like only the night before I'm like, oh wow, I'm doing this cool thing tomorrow. I didn't realize. Oh, <laughs> you know, that's it's, cool. it's it's a great way. It's a great way of uh, of operating though. So how, how long into your journey um, as an entrepreneur should it be before you bring on that executive assistant? So I did that pretty much straight away. Um, I like when I was 22 years old, I copied my mentor. Um, he started his business with three people. I was one of them. Um, and he brought on rebels and misfits, right? Like I was just a complete, you know, inexperienced person um, who was just kind of passionate and a bit of a rebel, bit of a misfit. And he just brought together myself and these other couple of young people and we became his starting team. And he got us doing stuff and we did it and we were passionate and we learned on the job. And, you know, so when I went and started my company, I started with three people and I put put my team together and we launched and we did 1.3 million in the first year working together. Um, when I came to the UK and I arrived with a suitcase and a credit card, um, I didn't have any connections. I didn't have any networks. Uh, one of the things that in Melbourne, Australia, I'd done is I'd done Latin jive dancing. So... Um, when I arrived in London, I looked up, is there a Latin jive dancing club? And I joined Latin jive dancing. And when I was dancing, I um, I was telling the girls that I was meeting there, I'm looking for an executive assistant. I've just arrived and I'm looking for someone. If you know anyone who would make a good assistant, um, let me know. And I basically ended up with this amazing assistant um, within a week or two. Uh, so, um, you know, I basically enrolled this person and then I had a salesperson join the team and we had an appointment setter and a sales closer and a, an events person. So I like put together my team starting by going to, to dance classes. You see, you, see, so ridiculous. you see, it's a counterintuitive approach, approach essentially what you said, because when I started my business, I started on my own and then built it up to like two or three people and, and, and then on from there. But you're saying, you know, set your goal out and start with a three. And I think, I think to be honest, if I look back now and, and think, you know, we did, I think we did half a, half a mil Australian in that first year of business. I think if we'd started potentially with three people, we probably could have done a hell of a lot more revenue because I just didn't think, I just didn't, mm. I, di I, I mean, I went against the grain and went top of the market, worked down, which was good, which was, which was predicated on the back of similar to what you, you'd said. Um, but I didn't think about starting with three. So that's, 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 mm. a, that's a real good insight for a lot of you listening to this, uh, uh, what Daniel said there. The British military, they never send people out on their own. It's always two, right? Yeah. They've been going for 400 years, right? So they've tried every HR experiment you could always, you could do. So two people is a scout team, yep. scouting an opportunity. Um, the smallest team is a four person fire team which is defending a little position, doing a short-term thing uh, or a campaign in business. Um, the standard team is called a section. That's eight people. And then that's part of a platoon, which is about 40 people. So I think in terms of if there's an organization that's already figured this out, like British military, then I'm just going to copy that. So if I've got a new idea, two-person scout team goes straight onto it. Then we do a four-person campaign, and I put a four-person team on it. They go off and do a campaign, see if it works. Then we establish an eight-person section, and that eight-person team, their job is to do a million of revenue and to get that thing up and running, and then we build that into a platoon. 
about 35, 40 people, and their job is to run a multi-million pound business and achieve a seven-figure EBITDA profit. So it's very simple, 24830. Um, and you know, that's that's my formula. Um, and the faster you can be hitting those numbers, building an established business, then away you go. I hope all of you that are listening to this have just literally took that in. And if you if you can, rewind that bit. In fact, listen to this podcast twice because there's that much value in it because that is profound at how, you know, it goes against the grain of what traditional entrepreneurs are saying. I oh, just work harder and all this fluff and all this bullshit that people are telling you. But, but what Daniel said there is like, never start a business with just one person. Always start with two, you. And even if it's just you and the executive assistant at the start, it's better than you on your own. I think that's brilliant. Oh, totally. I mean, imagine a football get match, right? Imagine you go onto a football match and you know that the right number of people is 11. But you think, oh, I'm going to run out there on my own. Once I've kicked a few goals, then I'll get another person. Then we've kept kicking a few goals together. <laughs> then we'll then we'll get another couple of people. Yeah. It's like you're never going to do it. You're never going to get off the ground. Um, so if you know that a minimum viable campaign team is four people, you just got to start with four people. A great example is a bank robbery, right? So think about how they rob a bank. It's three or four people getting together at night, having a pizza and a beer, and then they get out the Lego and the Matchbox cars and they draw a map and they figure it out. Then they go on the weekend and they like drive the getaway route. They do all this stuff together as a little mini team. Yeah. They do not say, I'm going to run into the bank, let off a shotgun, and then try and recruit a getaway car yeah. driver. So business is the same. You should be sitting around with people saying, hey, I'm launching a business. Do you want to be part of a launch team? I need a salesperson. I need a call setter. I need a person who can help with our website. I need someone who's going to do email marketing campaigns. Um, so you're trying to bring people in. The problem is, is that if you're a new business, the only people you get are misfits. And that's what that's that's how it is. You just have to start with misfits. Rebels and misfits is where you begin. You're going to start with people who don't have a job, or their job is McDonald's, or they're you know you're going to rope people in. One of my favorite things I've ever done is when I notice someone who's cool, who's great. I just say, "Hey, would you be willing to quit your job and come work with me?" And then I shut up. So I've done this with like restaurant staff, and I've done this with a guy who's like selling me a mobile phone package. I've gone, "Hey, you're really good at sales. Would you quit your job and come work with me?" And they always go, what do you do? <laughs> or they say no, right? So if they say no straight away, no, I wouldn't do that, then you know there's no chance. But if they say, what do you do? You know you can get them. Yeah, um, I love if it. They, if they ask the question, what do you do? What is it you do? You know that, that they're up for it. You, you, you've said some things on here that are profound. And, and if I'd known these at the start of my entrepreneurial journey, it would have been a hell of a lot easier, to be honest, like, because I would never, I would have never started on my own knowing what, I, knowing, what you, knowing the way – the way you've just articulated that and the way you've explained it and the reasoning behind it, I can understand as an entrepreneur how that would have benefited me and how I would have done probably another, I probably would have done 2 million plus in my first year of business mm -hmm. if I had operated and gone out that way. Because, you know, I would have, I would have, we would have each per person, if we'd gone out with four from the offset, you would have done 500 thousand per person in that business no no drama at all and you're absolutely right and it's somewhere where i've where i've where of oversight but if there's if there's obviously a look i know you're how a many people are on your team now frankie i've got uh two outsourcers and me at the moment i'm gonna now you've now i've had um now i've had this this i'm gonna bring on an ea 
I need one. Well, but because because better it, than this. Can I can I pause you there? Yeah. Better than bringing on an EA. Yeah. What I would like you to do is design your organization with eight people, right? So you're going to be the key person of influence. You're going to yeah. have a general manager. You're going to have a couple of people in sales, a couple of people in operations doing the work, maybe a financial mm-hmm. controller. But I want you to design. What does my organization look like with eight? And how much revenue do we have to do? What would everyone do? Like, what would this team look like if we were eight people? And maybe there's an EA on the team. Maybe there is an, e- an executive assistant who does this, that, and the other. But I want you to work backwards from, from the goal. this outcome, right? Yeah. So we want to reverse engineer the inspiring future. We don't want to forward engineer what we have. So we just simply say, like, for example, if you had a block of land, beautiful beachside block of land, and you think to yourself, hmm, what could I put on it? I could put a hotel, I could put a dream home, um, I could put a little resort, I could put a bungalow. What what could I put on there? What you definitely would not do is just start building something and then hopefully it ends up as a hotel or hopefully it ends up as a dream home. You've got to have a, a beautiful design and you're working backwards to create the design that you've already designed. How detailed should it be? It should be so freaking detailed, you know exactly how many doors, how yep. many toilets, how many doorknobs, Everything. Now, when I design businesses, I start with, do I want this to be a 40-person business doing $6 million of revenue? Okay, great. If that's what I want, what would they all do? Okay, I've got a leadership team. I've got a CEO, CTO, CFO, CMO, COO. Okay, great. Now I've got a regional team. I've got a head of uh, European markets. I've got a head of Asia Pacific. I've got a head of uh, this. I've got product managers. Product manager for this, 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 this. They're going to have four people in their team. They're going to have eight people in their team. We're going to have these salespeople doing this. So I'm mapping it all out. I'm building an org chart. I haven't even started yet, right? And then I'm thinking, okay, how are we going to generate the revenue? Okay, we need 15,000 people paying 49 pounds a month. Okay, great. How do, we, how do we build that out? What are going to be our channels? So I'm designing this is what it looks like when it's beautiful, when it's perfectly done. And I'm going to work backwards from that. So what I'm going to try and do is build some stages two-person, four-person, eight-person, 40-person. I'm going to build up in those stages. What are we going to look like at this point, at this point, at this point? And I'm going to then, when I go and talk to my team, I go and I say, what we're trying to build here is a 40-person company doing $6 million of revenue and 15, $1.5 million of profit, and here's what it's going to be, and here's how many clients we're going to need, and these are the markets we're going to operate in, these are the roles. Do you want to help me build it? And they go, yeah, totally. So I'm giving them clarity. This is the this is the beautiful outcome I'm working towards. Let's let's work backwards from the end result, not forwards from where I am today. Do you think I've built it wrong then? Because I've got two people over here in one business, which is obviously the content removal side of things, and then I've got two people over here in the in the podcast entity as well. Like obviously, uh, they fall. You've on- not built it wrong. If this was the perfect vision, yeah of where you wanted to get to and you reverse engineered it to be just like this, then you didn't do it wrong. But if you just if you just kind of added a piece and added a piece and added a piece and you ended up with this, then yeah, you did build it wrong. Yeah. So what at any time you can change this. So what I want you to do is think about what does it look like if it was perfect? What is the future beautiful organization? How much revenue? How much profit? What kind of customers? Right? And we build it and we say like a great question is what would it look like in a saleable uh, as a saleable asset? Yeah. 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 What would it look like as a saleable asset? So you might say, well, it needs to be about 40 people. We're going to have um, celebrities, uh, brands. 
We're going to do deals with the big four accounting firms. We're going to do deals with the, um, you know, FTSE 100. We're going to do deals with these companies. We're going to have a, you know, this each each one of these markets is going to have a team of eight people who do that. We're going to build uh, four teams of eight um, plus a leadership team. We're going to have a board of directors and a non-executive director. We're going to have this great business. The business itself is going to do $8 million. It's going to do $3 million of profit, and we're going to sell it to this publicly listed company that wants to buy a reputation management company because it's perfectly aligned to their strategy. So then you start building that future state. And then once you've got the future state all mapped out, you then say, all right, who are some of the people I can plug straight in? Right? We're, we're, what's going to be our build-up points? That's how you want to build the business. So I should build I should build uh, contentremoval.com as a, as a, as a saleable asset, the thing that can get me the multiple exit and everything like that because it's a clear strategy. <laughs> and, and I should build the podcast as, as, as my personal brand podcast and as a separate entity so that I've got something to do. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Uh, do you want well? Do you want a lifestyle business or do you want a performance business? Do you even want an exit? I, I I would I would love an I would love an exit, but it, it, essentially I have to re, I, I have I have done the reverse engineered organizational chart in a different metric to what you've said of the key people. And I think I need I think I need eight eight people to to get the to get the twenty five thirty mil that I'd want for this type of business. I think you need I think you could do it with eight people. Core team of eight. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. So core team of eight. Um. So yeah. So great. That's that's pretty exciting. I personally, if you know that you're going to be building a very big and exitable business, I would be using the podcast to build assets that are saleable assets that come as part of the business. Um, and I'd build the podcast in such a way that all of the podcasts become saleable assets with the uh, with the business. The idea that you're not going to have something to do after you've exited. I've exited several businesses. There's always something to do. That is never, it is never a problem that you don't have stuff to do. I, I, I love, I love podcasting. This is my, this is, this, this to me is art. I treat it as art and I'm fully, I fully love and the, do you know what I mean? Like I was excited to come and, mm. and, and speak with you today and I'm excited. I drove down to Bournemouth at the weekend to speak with a, with a guy and, and, and I, I just, I just, I fell in love with this art, you know, and, and it's probably, it's probably cost me a lot of money falling in love with this, to be honest. Um, I think you're building great assets and anyone who's listening knows who you are, what you're about. They can send people to your, to your business. I, I would dare say that you've got an issue around capacity that, essentially large corporates are going to look at your agency and say it's too small for for them if i was a big four accounting firm and i said hey look we we want to clean up some of this stuff that's old or it's legacy or we've got this negative press and we want to address it better um i would want to have an agency that's bigger than a few people i want to have something that that seems like it's it's uh it's got some i i I agree i agree with you but do you want do you want to hear a little bit of a, a little bit of a truth behind that a lot of those big yeah, agencies come to me and say, Frankie, how the fuck do we get rid of this? Yeah, But I know, but I know what you're saying. I, I can, I can literally. Well, they'll be the ones that sell yeah, though. They'll yeah, be the yeah, exitable yeah, business. Yeah. 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 They'll, they'll be the one that do the multiple and we won't, if, if we don't sort it See, out pretty if quick. You, if you do build a 30 million, are you talking about 30 million value or 30 million revenue? Uh, uh, no, uh, no. I think I think I think I think you could get it to. to I think you could get it to inside uh, sixteen months. I'm, I'm sure you could get it to ten million, in 10, 12 million in revenue, which would mean it would probably be worth what thirty million exit, wouldn't it? Uh, depends. If it so, when someone buys a company, there's three big things that they want. 
they want an operational team that is going to stick around and run the business. Yeah. Um, normally, a stable team is normally a team that's bigger than 30 people. Um, the problem with an eight-person team is normally they're loyal to the founder, and as soon as the founder leaves, you get two or three of them leave, and that's almost half the company. Um, so uh, an acquirer is always a little bit nervous about an eight-person team because they see that it could easily fall over. So a 30-person team is much more saleable than an eight-person team, even though you're thinking about efficiency an acquirer is thinking about stability. Um, so where, yeah. where, where this was a key metric, and I agree with you in what you're saying, is because I know a, a fitness business in, a, in Australia that had a smaller team and was trying to exit for a couple of hundred million, and they had to go and uh, he had to go, the CEO had to go and employ people that he didn't really think he needed to build the organizational chart out to sell the business. Mm. And I was like, this yeah. doesn't make any sense. He said, it doesn't need to make sense. I just need to sell this thing. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I was like, yeah. I, yeah. so no, I get yeah. it. It totally does make sense when you view it through the eyes of an acquirer. An acquirer wants a stable team where some people, if you've bought businesses, you know what an eight person team is like. They're totally loyal to the founder. And as soon as the founder leaves, three, four, five people go off and start their own company three or four of them go and have a beer one night and say, hey, we should go do this ourselves. So-and-so just sold for millions. We should go build ourselves a business that sells for millions. Yeah. That's what an eight-person team is like. Once right. you hit 30, 40 people, they are just happily working in the in the business. They don't care who the founder is or the owner of the business. They don't care that it changed hands. They, they just keep working. So you need to get, like the acquirer wants the business to have hit that point and they will pay more for that uh, because it's just... You know, it's just got that stability. And it's kind of like a big house. If I was to buy a beautiful big house, I want it to have plenty of bedrooms and bathrooms. And someone will say, well, that's inefficient. You don't have that many, you know, I, did, I just never needed that many bathrooms and toilets. And I say, yeah, but it's a big house. I want five bathrooms and I want toilets around the place. Well, that's inefficient. Well, that's what I want if I'm spending three, four million on a house, right? So, um you know, it's it doesn't have to be logical. It has to just be what the acquirer wants to spend money on. The the, the key th the key thing ab uh, about this business, uh, and I know you're 100 percent right in what you, exactly what you're saying. The key thing about this business was they went they, they went from like I think it was about 80 organizational chart to about 120 on the organizational chart. They 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 were acquired for a large amount of money, and then mm -hmm. shortly after they're acquired. The team dropped to like there was redundancies, and the team dropped to seventy because they realised when they bring in all these other parts of the business, they didn't even need them anyway. So what all all, all, yeah. all, 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 I'm, all I'm saying is, like, I understand. Go back to yeah. Go back to the British military example. Two person scout team, yeah. four person fire team, eight person section, yeah. Thirty forty person platoon. Next size up is a company. Yeah. Right. So big businesses they want to buy platoons and up. Yeah. Um, now they'll jump between those. They very rarely want to buy a section. They don't yeah. want to buy a fire team, right? Anyway, that's only thing number one. Number one is the team, but normally they want at least 30 people for it to feel like a proper acquisition. Um, number two is the proprietary assets. So proprietary assets is your intellectual property, software that you've developed, media that you've developed. So if I was looking at your business and I said, okay, this business comes with 100 episodes of a podcast, they've got all these posters, they've got checklists, they've got so internal software that they've developed that they use, um, they've got a whole system and a process for doing the work, right? So that's proprietary intellectual property, media, software that, that exists. 
Um, so essentially, number one is the team. Number two is the proprietary assets. Number three is predictable recurring revenues that my CFO can model and easily see that this has predictable recurring revenues. So the way your contracts are set up. So a simple little change, like if you charge 25 grand for a cleanup and that's it, right? Then the CFO says, well, that is a 25 grand cleanup. Lumpy cash business. Yeah. Right. And now if you said we charge a thousand a month, now you might say, well, that's ridiculous. It needs to be 25 months to get 25 grand. Yes, but the CFO likes that business better because it models better. Yeah. Right. A grand. A, if I have a grand a month times a thousand customers, now I've got a million a month. Yeah. Um, so and you can like, sell okay, predictable revenue easier, can't you? Much higher multiples. Yeah. So, so, uh, so rather than yeah, rather than a sales business where the revenue doesn't stack, you want a recurring revenue model business that stacks. And what I mean by that is a 25 grand sale normally has to have a start, middle and completion and then a new sale is made. Revenue that stacks is that we sell contracts and we just look after those contracts. A thousand people at a thousand a month is the million a month business. That sells for way more than a $12 million project business. So if you've got a project model business that's doing 12 million, yeah, okay, it might sell for 12 million, right? One times revenue. You've got a million a month of recurring revenue on open-ended contracts, might sell for 36 million, might sell for 48 million, uh, might sell for 60 million, depending on how much the software is doing the work versus the people. And that is why Daniel Priestley is the gift that keeps on giving in the podcast <laughs> space. <laughs> I really, I really appreciate your time, your time. And obviously look, I took, I took a bit longer today than what, than what we should have done. They need a lot of time, but I really appreciate it. And it was a real good deep dive for everyone. And guys, I want you to go one, two, like I said, two of the key books of Daniel's that really made an impact on my life was oversubscribed and key person of influence. I think you should, you should read both of those books if you if you've got the chance and you can get them up you, you can go, just go on amazon you'll find you'll find them that they are real really impactful especially for a lot of people that are starting out as well and want to build themselves into that key person of influence but daniel if there's one key bit of one percent advice that can move everyone in this audience forward before we leave this podcast today if and you've got to leave the planet check out you can't leave anything else but you just leave this one key words these key words of wisdom what would it be This is the greatest time in, in the world to be an entrepreneur. This is, this is it. This is the magic moment. There's never been a better time, ever, right? This is, there's more money available. There's more amazing people available to join teams. There's more customers available in global markets. There's more technology that's plug and play. There's, there's more of everything. Do not let anybody tell you otherwise. This time in history to be alive and an entrepreneur and having fun and embracing life and having fun with life get out there and have fun with life turn off the news turn off the negative media get rid of all of the stuff that um is 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 giving you a negative view of the world or relationships and get out there and have fun with life and watch how many great things show up because uh, because this is for whatever reason you were born at the perfect perfect moment in history to be alive right now and you would not want to trade it for anything. You wouldn't want to be alive at any other time in history. This is the best. Love it. I love it. And again, thank you so much for your time. And guys, do me a solid favor. Share this with a friend. Share this episode with a friend. And if you can, jump over to Apple or uh, Apple and leave us a review or Spotify and leave us a rating. That really helps uh, push this thing further forward. And if you could share it with as many people as possible, also that helps massively. Much love.
Guys, do me a solid favor, drop a comment below this video and let us know who you want on the podcast next.